Blog Talk Radio. And we're on the air. Here's Michael Norris. Still waiting on the... The music will start the minute I start talking. That thing just spins around. You know, it's like uh, you think I'm going to start, but uh, guess what? I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. There we go. And away we go. Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents. Peach State Pandemonium. And now here's Michael Lord. Good evening and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, July 21st, 2016. This is Michael Norris along with Bobby Simmons, Jay West. Is Jerry with us yet? Yeah, yes, uh, he, he, Jerry, he uh, punched, here. Good. punched in and out two or three times here before he finally connected here, kind of like our intro. But uh, <laughs> Jerry's on the line. <laughs> Fantastic. How are you guys doing this evening? Well, I'm, good. I'm doing well now that I've heard Jerry's voice. I, you know, I worry about him, man. I have nightmares about alligators and sharks. <laughs> so I'm always glad to hear his voice. Don't sweat on that account, sir. <laughs> <laughs> the DNR set me straight. Six feet or more, call them. There you go. <laughs> and you don't measure very well, so if you see one, it's over six feet, I'm sure. <laughs> Pocketbook size or, or full steamer trunk size and a there pair of go. shoes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, as I was mentioning, I uh, you know, finally back with the the living here. It took about two and a half weeks for this uh, sinus stuff to uh, go away, and, and yeah, we still got the weather going on that contributes to this kind of kind of problem. But I'm uh, certainly feeling a lot better now. Well, good for you. I'm glad. Yes, sir. Took a while. Thank you, Jerry. Did you get the sinus headaches with it and the whole nine? Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was in the in the middle of the front of the head. Yes, sir, sure did. Yeah, and it was it was terrible. Uh, it took me three three doctor visits, and uh, the antibiotics they gave me were no thrill either. I'll tell you that. Uh, they uh, you know they helped one end but not the other. Moving on. Uh, as we were we were talking there, Mike, before we uh, went on the air here, we uh, lost one of our uh, nationally well-known wrestling commentators. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Bill Cardiel of uh, Pittsburgh, 87, died today of liver cancer. Uh, we wish the best to his family. Uh, there's a lot of information online about Bill. If you're not familiar with him, uh, please check it out because he was another one of those guys that were early in the late in the radio, early in the TV business that did just about everything there was from uh, television, DJ, uh, dance party shows to movies uh, to, uh, you know, different kind of contests. But his he, he was a newscaster. He did roller derby. He did professional wrestling. But his true love was Saturday nights when he was chilly billy on the uh, on the on the television station there in Pittsburgh where he did his uh, horror movie host show. And uh, he will be missed by his fans. Goulardi was the name I was trying to think of before. He was the one that did it in Cleveland. It was yeah. so famous. 
And then uh, Mobile didn't have anything like that. We had, well, Pensacola had Popcorn Theater, but they didn't really show any horror movies. They showed mainly Marx Brothers and uh, W.C. Fields type movies. But uh, they um, they kind of had a tie-in. It came on right after uh, the wrestling, and, and one of the hosts of that was uh, Lynn Tony, who at one time did the uh, TV commentary on Channel 3 in Pensacola. And in Tampa had uh, Dr. Paul Bear was uh, the mm-hmm. horror movie host. Uh, there's still one national. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say there's still one guy nationally, and that's uh, Spin Gooley, Rich Cause, who uh, was a, was not the original Spin Gooley. He was he became son of Spin Gooley, and then about 15, 20 years ago took the, took the title. But he's on MeTV on. Uh, uh, whatever your digital channel is for that, every Saturday night from uh, 10 until midnight. And he shows all the great universal movies in that package. So uh, if you can get BTV on your television, uh, check it out. Uh, well, I do. I'll have to start looking at that, even though I own all those horror, those universal horror ones. On, they're all in my library. He does some pretty good bits where they take some audio, you know, out of the show and they uh, put their own, like the, kind of like, like what the, yeah, the, the Elvira used to do. Yes, yes, it's very, it's 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 very very entertaining, uh, but he doesn't do it within the show. You know, he doesn't mess up the show itself. Those, when they take breaks, he'll 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 do certain spots within uh, within the show. He's got a guy that plays a keyboard with him, and they do parodies of songs, and it's uh, it's 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 funny. If you remember that kind of stuff, kids today would probably say, "What is that?" But uh, it's it, it it's it's. Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of, very nostalgic, and I uh, enjoy it. Sorry, Jerry, didn't mean to step on your toes there when you were trying to yes, talk. Yes, sir. I, I was just talking about horror uh, movies. I was in a horror match with Hans Schmitz. That's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I still remember that. <laughs> uh, here, here's something that will get your blood boiling. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, we all know who he is, The Rock. Uh, this is from the Wrestling Observer. Forbes magazine has just announced that Dwayne Johnson is the highest-paid actor in the world, making $64.5 million this past year. I hope he can survive on that. I should you know have been nicer to that kid when he was little. <laughs> he was, he, you know, he was, he was down at Tybee making a movie, and uh, I ran into a guy that was in another gym with him in another part of Savannah. And did you know they said he had two bodyguards with him? That's a little sick, oh. isn't it? I, I would, uh, yeah, sure. You know, well, you know, it's I the mean, movies. They have to have keep their investment safe because if something happens to their star, then you know they have to they have to lock down. They're out of business, and uh, that's why it's, you wonder why some people that we know that were still marketable or able to act don't act anymore, it's because they can't get uh, insured by the company that does the movies because they're afraid they're going to croak before they, sh- before they finish the movie. Mm. How about that? Mm. Well, I know one <laughs> thing about Dwayne Johnson. He's a much better actor than he ever was a wrestler. <laughs> I actually, I actually, enjoy, I don't think I've ever seen him in a movie that I didn't enjoy, and I couldn't stand to watch him in a wrestling ring, even though, you know, I wasn't really following you know, I wonder. I wonder if we could uh, destroy his image a little bit if we let everybody know he still lives with his mom. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, 
anyhow. You know, there wasn't anything wrong with living with your mom. I I lived with my parents again for a while after uh, my first wife passed away. I was going to say, I just spent 10 years living with mine. Yeah, Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. uh, So, you know, go ahead, Bobby. I was just thinking, you know, here again, uh, you know, and I'm all for everybody making everything they can make, and, yes, I do enjoy his movies. (laughs) There ain't nothing he's ever done worth $64 million. (laughs) I mean that's just that's how insane we are. I mean it's just you know sixty-four point five. Hey, I mean you think don't leave that point five off. Just think what we could do with point five million. Uh, I think I could survive on that. <clears throat> Jeez. Oh well. Yeah, I've survived for a lot less than that for a lot of years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Oh mercy! Oh well. I hope he hope he makes a lot more. Yeah, and he's got a couple. You know, he's he's turning them out now. I mean, this is his prime time for doing family type movies and things like that and the action adventures. So he's uh, he's he's turning them out right now. You know, they're they're he, uh, and, and they're do, doing good business for people who like uh, comic books and stuff like that. Right. He has been picked to be the new Doc Savage. Really, man of uh, yeah. uh, iron, man, man of iron. Is that what it is? Man, man of bronze. Yeah, Doc, man of bronze. There you go. Yeah, Doc Savage was based on those pulp. So I, I don't know if uh, he's going to bleach his hair blonde or not, because Doc Savage had blonde hair. That's true. So he may pull. But he's pretty. Sweet yeah, he he he, uh, he could probably do all right in that part. Yeah, they would, pulp magazines was where Doc Savage came from. Yeah. Well, I told Michael the other day since we're talking movies. Uh, my movie review of the week is uh, Ghostbusters, and I give it a thumbs up. I took my goddaughter to see it on Monday, and it was very enjoyable. And it, it wasn't. Uh, it's not worth what it cost to go see it, but it was very enjoyable. Uh, is the theme of the movie similar to the the theme song? Is it similar to the original movie, or is it different? actually actually at the end of the movie they play the original by Ray Parker? But yeah, it's the same song, but it's done by a couple of different artists in the movie. Um, okay. Pretty, pretty good soundtrack, but yeah, it's a. Uh, it follows the premise of the first movie, you know, closely. Um, all three of the original Ghostbusters have parts in the movie. You see them during the movie, and uh, it's. Uh, they've already. Uh, they've already said that. Uh, How'd they pull that off? Be since Carol Ramos so. is dead. Uh, Do what? Uh, I said, how'd they pull that off since Harold Ramis has been dead for four or five years? Well, when I say all three of my, uh, Ernie Hudson, okay. Bill, Bill Murray, Bill Murray, and, and uh, Sigourney Weaver. And, oh, and so Dan, Ac- Ackroyd's it, not in it either. Oh, Ackroyd's in it too, yes. Okay. Yeah, and they, they've, been making, they've been making the rounds of the, uh, yeah, and uh, the gal that played the secretary too from uh, Designing Women, she's got a, she's Annie got a part Potts. in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they've been making the rounds of all the late night talk shows of both the original actors and the ones in the new new series, uh, new movie. You know, talking about the thing. Well, they're probably building up to a to a franchise with it. So yeah, I'm sure there'll be a second one. Well, at the end of the movie, at the end of the credits, uh, remember all the old James Bond movies? They uh, they would always. Uh, 
at the very end, they would all say James Bond will return in, and they would yep. give you the name of the next movie. Well, they didn't give a name of a new movie, but they uh, they did say that the, that they would return. So they're yeah, they are going to do another movie. Uh, well, and speaking of franchises, next next week I'll have a movie review. Um, I am going to uh, see the new Star Trek, uh, not only in IMAX but IMAX 3D. Hey, you hey. talk about worth what that's going to cost. I've already bought. <laughs> I've already bought the tickets. Sixty-five dollars for three tickets. Is that you the, can get uh, a free ride on the Enterprise for that? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they ought to beam me over there so I don't have to drive get in traffic. Speaking is, of which, is that the, um, big is that brother, the third movie? A, of, is that the third yes. movie of the new series? Yeah. 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 Star Trek Beyond. So, uh, Big Brother, I need a I need a ride to church Sunday morning. We can probably arrange that. My kids are gonna pick me up, and then we're gonna go to Atlantic Station. Okay. And see the the movie in in IMAX 3D. Who would have thought of such a thing? You know, if you just said that, you know, they they yeah, okay, fine. What's that? I've only yeah. seen one. I've seen several movies in 3D. In fact, we just <clears throat> the last trip we went to the theater, we saw uh, the last, the latest Star Wars in 3D. But the only IMAX 3D I've seen is was the first um, Avengers movie, and that was Killer B. And, and I mean, I, you felt like you were in the movie. Well, you know, 3D goes back centuries you know so uh, well but the technology is called real 3d now it's it's so right. much better than you know the right. the blue and white or blue and red glasses <laughs> and, you right know, and you, you know like i love seeing old movies that you know were filmed in 3d watching them right. you know, just right because you can tell because somebody's always throwing something at the screen right sctv the comedy show yeah. used to do that <laughs> where they throw things out to give you the impression that it was 3d and the new the new gimmick is, is uh, that the theaters have. You buy the 3D glasses. They charge you three dollars a pair for them, for the 3D glasses. Yeah. And then they put this little thing on the film, or you know, on the on the trailer before it starts. Please drop your glasses in the box on the way out. Well, I refuse to do it. I'm not paying three dollars for those glasses, and then they're going to wrap them off with some alcohol and sell them to some other schmuck for three dollars. Uh, at right. least I'm going to make them furnish a new pair of glasses. Gotcha. I mean, that's just, geez. If you're buying them, you're buying them. That's, well, that's the way I look at it. I don't know what you'd ever do with them again, but. Because yeah, they won't work on 3D televisions. My aunt's got one, and you have to sit there. You know, and it's enjoyable, but I don't think I'd I'd, I'd watch a whole lot of TV sitting there with those glasses on. Because you, you, in order to watch the 3D television, you have to have these battery-operated glasses that, that fit with the TV. But uh, anyway, okay, we've uh, uh, we've uh, pretty well gone through that, and it's 15 after, <laughs> and uh, I want to put Chuck Thornton on the air, Mike, and you can. All right, well, let me let me give Chuck a uh, proper introduction. Uh, for those of you who do not know the name Chuck Thornton. Chuck Thornton is the foremost historian of Atlanta professional wrestling, especially in the 60s and and early 70s. Uh, Chuck started going, uh, attending uh, 
the live matches uh, when when he was but a wee child. Uh, I think he said 60. He'll get into that, but I think he told us 63 when he started, so he was probably still in diapers at the time. But hey, uh, wait a minute, I'm still in diapers. There we go. <laughs> no, you're back in diapers. There's a That's difference right. in being right. back in diapers and being still in diapers. <laughs> but um, the uh, but Chuck, uh, major historian for his collecting stuff, uh, everything. But he'll get into that with us. So uh, welcome to the show, and and we've been wanting to have him on for a long time, and. Uh, just one thing or another has been in the way, but welcome to Peace Day Pandemonium, Mr. Chuck Thornton. Okay, thank you, Mike, for that stirring introduction. Uh, <laughs> well, before we get into nervous. anything, let me ask you, Chuck just got went last weekend to something that you guys all knew he was going to, but I didn't know till he, he told me that I would absolutely been thrilled to to be a part of and and uh what a convention of old western cereals is that what it was right um yeah back in the early 70s a group of people who collected film old 16 millimeter film got together and they started a convention in which um they had some of the B western stars of the era of, of the 30s and 40s and 50s present and some of the serial stars uh, of that era present as well. And uh, they would get together and show 16-millimeter films. They would have these guest stars present to um, give interviews, answer questions, sign autographs, and there would be a large dealer's room uh, where you could go in and buy film, posters, magazines, comics. Uh, that has been going on since the early 70s. And um, the first one I went to was in 76, I believe it was, in Nashville. And unfortunately, most of the B-Western stars have died off now. And they have um, later movie stars present. Like this past time, um, I just returned uh, last week from Winston-Salem. Um, they had Fred Williamson, Fred the Hammer Williamson, who was, uh, who was a football star, I believe, with the Kansas City Chiefs. He was also in a number of movies. Um, Johnny Crawford, who was on The Rifleman, was there. Um, they had several stars, but again, unfortunately, a number of the stars, especially the Western stars, have passed away. So it's not what it used to be, but uh, it's still a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I mean, I'd, 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 be, I'd be like uh, a, I was just a say, wrestling mark well, there, for something like that. <laughs> they had one here in Atlanta in 1990 and uh, downtown, and uh, Lee Aker from uh, Rent 1010 was there. And uh, in 1990, of course, we're talking 26 years ago, there were still, you know, quite a few of the of the folks around. Lash LaRue was one of them. And uh, and uh, so at any rate, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, uh, my visit with uh, a lot of the folks that were, were attending that convention. But, uh, you know, that's the only one I ever went to, and... and uh, Doctor Who is my thing, and those are the conventions that I've I've gone to. But but you know you always have your hardcore people at these conventions. Oh yeah, uh, they right. they collect everything and they know everything there is about everybody. Right, that's pretty much true. And and of course um, there was one in Atlanta or two prior to that, and I co-promoted one of them. Um, the first one, as far as I'm aware of, was done in 1984 in Atlanta, and uh-huh. uh, Harold Smith, a friend of mine from um, from the Tennessee area had been involved in some in other areas, and he wanted someone in Atlanta to help him to put one on, so I told him I would give it a try. 
And at that particular one, uh, Kirk Allen, who's the Superman in the Superman serials, mm-hmm. was present. John Hart, who was the other Lone Ranger, was present. Correct. Uh, Reno Brown, who was a, a lady star in some of the uh, Whip Wilson Westerns. Richard Martin, who was a sidekick to Tim Holt in a lot of RKO Westerns. Uh, I think Sunset Carson was present. The ever-present Lash LaRue was there. So uh, there were several people there, and uh, that was in 84. And, of course, we lost quite a bit of money on that one, so I backed out of the next one. But there was one the following year um, with the same format, and they've been going on for a long time, and they are a lot of fun. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I'm trying to, I'll never find it. I meant to look this up before the show started, and I, I totally forgot about it. A tie-in to old westerns, and we, of course, Everybody knows who Carl Switzer was, Alfalfa from the Little Rascals, and know how he died. I'm thinking the man that shot or stabbed him, killed him, whatever, ever, ever, ever how he died, was a famous B-Western movie star stepson, and I want to say it was um, Crash Corrigan, but I I don't know for sure. I'll have to dig in. Nor am I. I'm not sure who it was that was involved in that. But, of course, Crash Cargan was um, a member of the Three Musketeers trio and also the Range Busters trio. And in some movies um, where they uh, – he had an ape suit, and he um, he played a gorilla in several movies of note, or maybe not of note, but uh, he was in several movies as well as a gorilla. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure that he was involved okay. in that or not, but let me here know when you find out. Here it is right here. The uh... – um, the guy who who killed Alfalfa's name was Moses Delitz. He okay. was he was Tom Corrigan's stepfather. Tom Corrigan was the son of Crash Corrigan, so that's oh, okay. what, I knew there was a tie into it. Uh, right. Crash Corrigan actually re- refereed some wrestling matches in Mobile one time. Okay, and um, seems as though in, in at least one of the Mesketeers movies, he was a wrestler in one of the Mesketeer movies too. Well, you know, they did all it. they did all sorts of action, and those guys didn't have many uh, stunt doubles for him. You know, that was what Crash Corrigan did, and right. uh, so right. so yeah, they 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 got they got uh, their share of being beat up a lot. Uh, oh, yeah. And Tr- Crash Corrigan later on had a ranch, I think, where. Uh, uh, you know, kind of like a dude ranch where people could come and uh, see some of the stuff from his era and and whatnot. So uh, that's that's what he kind of got into. If people wondered what he what he did after he was no longer in the movies, but you know, it, it's something about that, Chuck. We think of those guys as being really stars, and mm-hmm. but with the exception of a few of them, like John Wayne and Randolph Scott, who who you know moved on to A pictures. Uh, a lot of those guys were 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 not. Stars, when you look at it as as far as the major motion picture companies were concerned, or things like that, right. and they eked out a living, you know, just uh, from 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 movie to movie, and uh, and uh, like uh, you know, like Yakima Knut, who was the the stunt guy who worked all the time, but a lot of these guys, you know, that if if when when those pictures went out of out of vogue, then you know, that they basically had to look for something else to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, but they, they made so many of these movies, and they were called B-Westerns because they turned them out real quick. Um, right. Sometimes they were filming more than one at a time, <laughs> and they didn't put a lot of money into them, a lot of time. <clears throat> Pardon me. 
Um, but um, yeah, they they were stars to us though. Oh, absolutely. Hey, one more thing I'll say about those a lot of those movies, which was really funny, is that they were billed as westerns, but a lot of the background material was present day stuff. You know, you'd, yeah. you'd have guys riding horses and. And and going after the stagecoach, and then in the next scene, you'd see people driving up in in, in vehicles from, you know, pretty much right. modern day of that time. It was a kind of like right. a time warp deal. <laughs> yeah, that it was. Well, that just like, like Roy Rogers. What was the guy's name? Pat Brady. Pat Brady. Drove, uh, yeah. Nelly Bell. It was his Jeep. That's right. <laughs> yep, that's that's what the name of his Jeep was was Nelly Bell, and I think those are. Uh, a few minutes ago, you were mentioning MeTV. Um, there's another station, I think it's called Cozy. I think it's 46.2. Yep. They yep. show a lot of B-Westerns on that. And early in the morning, they show some of the Roy Rogers TV shows. And, uh, yeah, the name of this Jeep was Nellie Bell. Yeah, I, I've told this story before, but uh, on here before. But when I was a kid, Roy Rogers was, was absolutely my hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was living in Columbus um, in I don't know, 65, 66, something like that, they opened a Roy Rogers roast beef in <laughs> right. Columbus, Georgia. Do you remember that, Jerry, when that place Very opened? well. Very well. Right well, anyway, the, the opening day, Roy Rogers was there. So needless to say, Michael stomped his feet and, and did whatever <laughs> I had to do to get my parents to take me to see Roy Rogers. So I stood in this long line, and I finally got up there, and I'm looking, and there's this old man with a cowboy hat and a nudie suit on, and I'm thinking, who in the world is that? So I get up there and shake his hand, and I had I, I told him, I said, you're not Roy Rogers. You're some old man dressed like Roy Rogers. Oh, you know, wow. I, you know, I was watching stuff from the on TV from the 30s and 40s, and, you know. Right. Here it is, twenty-five years later, and I just didn't expect him to look like that. But but he he got the biggest kick out of that. He was a, a great guy, just you know, for the few minutes that I had to spend and talk to him. But uh, and I, I guess that's why when I when I got into wrestling, Bob Kelly was my became my hero because he looked like Roy Rogers to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Roy Rogers was one of those uh, guys, though you know, that was extremely wealthy. And uh, even though, uh, you know, his contemporaries, uh, like Gene Autry, who retired and went into other stuff, Roy worked up until very close to the end. I mean, he, you know, he he, he did stuff. Uh, well, yeah, he, he, he and, obviously, he and uh, Dale Evans had a show on what used to be the Nashville Network. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, they loved it. They, and they were know, on that, uh, all kind of, of the Christian stations. You know, they, they right. had various shows. Um, well, I'm sure you guys know what his his real name was, Leonard Sly, and you know that's right. B- born in Duck Run, Ohio, I believe. Well, actually, where the the home he was born in, supposedly, and I don't know. I had a friend of mine that was a I worked with many years ago that was a, a Cincinnati Reds fan, and he said third base of Cincinnati, the the field where Cincinnati played, I don't know if it's still the same stadium now or not, but the the third base where Cincinnati the Cincinnati Reds played in the eighties used to be where Roy Rod the house Roy Rogers was born in stood at that spot. So evidently that was a marketing thing for the Reds. They were talking about this as third base of Roy Rogers' birthplace. Or something, but 
Never knew that one. Yep. All right. But anyway, how did you get discover professional wrestling? Okay, well, I had been looking at wrestling on television for a while, and then uh, in the fall of 1961, I was looking at live Atlanta wrestling, and I believe it was Don McIntyre was demonstrating his abdominal stretch in the ring, saying that no one could get out of that hole. And then all of a sudden, from the back of the studio, a guy with a black mask comes out, wearing a black mask comes out, gets in the ring, says, I can I can get out of it. That, of course, was the assassin, Jody Hamilton, the original assassin number one. And uh, he got in the ring and said that he could get out of it. He got in the ring, of course, he couldn't get out of it, and all hell broke loose. That was my major introduction was then. I knew I had to start going when I saw that. The, the mass just intrigued me. Um, so I kept looking at it, and then um, in the spring of 62, I, I'm sure I kept after my parents long before that, but in the spring of 62, uh, for my birthday, my birth month is April, I wanted to go to the city auditorium to uh, to see the live matches. And uh, so they arranged to take me. I was disappointed that the assassins weren't on the card because that's what I wanted to go to see. But uh, I was hooked from that point on. And uh, the main event that night was Eddie Graham and Dickie Steinborn against Tojo Yamamoto and Taro Miyake. That was the main event for the first one I went to, and that was April the 20th of 62. And I was a mark from that point on. <laughs> how, how old were you then, Chuck? I was 11, the, the grand old age of 11. And that's been a long time ago. But you you had watched you had watched wrestling on TV before for some time before you actually went to the live matches, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I saw it on television from uh, Detroit and various places, and of course I had been looking at live Atlanta wrestling. But like I said, that's what hooked me when I saw this guy with the black mask come out of the back of the studio. The mystery, I guess it was, but uh, that's what hooked me, and I had to go then. Had to go. So the assassins, yeah, Jody was was the original. I think he's mm-hmm. he told the story when when he did our show several years ago that the original plan was he was supposed to be called the Iron Russian, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, when he got um, his got to his first show and everything, they changed it to the assassin. Do you know how long it was before um, Ernesto came in? Okay, let's see. That was 61. I think it was November. Uh, I think it was November of that year because, uh, let's see here, Renesto had been wrestling in Texas as Tony Martin. Right. Um, and he was, uh, I think it was around November was the first time that he came in and that the team, you know, came to be at that point. And uh, there were wrestling magazines that um, were revealing mass men's identities or whatever, wrestling review. And they said that the assassins were Joe Hamilton and uh, Jim Burke. And for years, that's what I believed. Um, And I never knew who Jim Burke was. And then all of a sudden, um, I've been collecting uh, wrestling memorabilia ever since that point. And I ran across a picture of a guy named Jim Burke and he had a, a somewhat pronounced forehead, kind of like Renesto did, and he had a hairy chest, too. So I was beginning to wonder if that was, in fact, the assassin number two. But, of course, later I found out differently it was Renesto. 
And in my mind, they were they were the best team that there was. The interviews, uh, it was it was just something to witness. Uh, for, somebody were, was, were in, for somebody that was for somebody who was just a Jeff. casual viewer, Chuck, uh, how how did you or people that 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 did this get involved in collecting memorabilia? How did you get your contacts, and and then how did that kind of little family grow from just you know one or two people you were dealing with to a whole lot of people? Okay, all right. Well, um, of course, um, I still have my first wrestling program from April the twentieth of '62. Uh, and I have many others that I've collected since that time. Um, and also at the matches, there came a time when um, uh, Franklin Head, whom you all know, called him Red, he was the gentleman who used to sell the programs. He would also sell photographs, too. So uh, I started to collect the photographs from that point. I think it was 1967 before I actually got to the point of corresponding with someone else. Um, I met this gentleman from Charlotte, North Carolina. He's still a friend to this day. His name is Jimmy Ryan. Um, he was backstage. Uh, a lot of times I would try to hang around after the matches to maybe see the wrestlers leave, get autographs or whatever. But anyway, I met this guy named Jimmy Ryan from Charlotte, and he was backstage on the stage at the Old City Auditorium. And we talked for a while, and he had some things from Charlotte um, that he showed me and wanted to trade and on the program that he showed me were the Infernos, um, uh, Frankie Kane and Rocket Smith. There was a picture of them and uh, uh, J.C. Dykes, their manager, on the cover of that. And my love of Masked Men, um, you know, drew me to that. And he and I began, began corresponding. And um, Jimmy moved around a lot. He lived in Canada for a while, a little bit everywhere. And he, he hitchhiked most everywhere he went, but um, you know he would stay in touch. He would write me, send me results, and everything. So he uh, he was the first person that I corresponded with. Um, the next one was in '68. Um, this gentleman's name was George Hill. He's no longer with us. He was from Tampa. Uh, George, in later years, uh, wrestled as Crybaby Edwards in the um, Kentucky area, I believe it was, mm-hmm. and he also. Um, was a manager. He used the name Frederick Fitzgerald Edwards. I believe he managed um, Bruiser McManus and Jerry Watson, Dr. Jerry Watson, I think he yep. was. Uh, yep. But in any event, um, George was the second person that I began corresponding with, and we kept in touch up until his passing uh, a few years ago. Um, and the next one was Jim Melby from Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota. Jim is no longer with us either, but uh, he and I began a long relationship of collecting and swapping things. So those were the main three that uh, that I've dealt with over the years, although there have been many others. Uh, Tom Burke up in the uh, Massachusetts area, uh, Fred Hornby, who recently passed. He lived in New York. So, um, you know, it's it's just a lot of fun just collecting these um, pieces of old memorabilia and trading and just knowing what's going on in other areas, although there was nothing like what happened here in Atlanta. That was that was my main focus, although um, I did enjoy the things from Florida and the Carolinas as well. When did you uh, uh, first contact Jim Milby? Okay, it was in 69, I believe it was. It was either late 68 or early 69. Um, 
I think I might have gotten his name out of a magazine. The magazines used to have names of people that you could trade with and so forth. So it was either late 68 or early 69. But uh, he and I began collect, uh, trading things back and forth. Uh, he would send me programs from Minnesota. I would send him things from here, clippings as well. And we would trade other things uh, also. And one thing that um, uh, one, and when, when eBay came along, um, I began to scour eBay for things, and I would find things, and he and I would share them. I would maybe bid and win something, and we'd share, or we would trade, or whatever. And the biggest thing we got was um, that was part of the Jack Pfeffer collection on eBay a number of years ago. And um, I think the starting bid—I probably shouldn't say this—but I think the starting bid was like five thousand dollars. And so, considering how much stuff was in the collection. I said, well, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So I waited <laughs> to the last second to bid, and I think I bid six. And I was the only bidder. I was the only fool, you know, crazy enough to bid on this <laughs> stuff. But, but anyway, um, I wanted it. It cost $5,000. And um, there were several boxes and boxes of stuff that were sent to me from having won that. And um, Jim was interested in it, but when he found out how much it was um, going for before I won it, he backed off, but then when I got it, inventoried it and everything, he said, well, I'll give you half, and so we split it. Uh, I would ship stuff to him, and he'd pick some stuff, and you'd send it back and so forth. So we went halves on that. But um, that was um, that was my relationship with Jim, and uh, he's a fine fellow, fine fellow. Yeah, he became he uh, very well-known in, in wrestling circles as a writer working for Norm Keicher and doing the – uh, doing the various magazines, and when they got a hold of the Ring Wrestling magazine, they were really, you know, newsstand publication, which is something he really wanted. I uh, I, I talked to him uh, on the phone, and, and uh, you know, wrote you know pre pre certainly way way before uh, email days uh, mm-hmm. in the late seventies up until about eighty one or eighty two when I was uh, uh, he was the editor and I was doing some writing for the. Uh, uh, wrestling news, and he, he he seemed you know never met him in person, but he seemed to be a really nice guy. Yeah, he was very. And very he was nice. a good guy, very good guy. Yes, he was, yes, he was, very nice. Yep. Who is this we're talking to, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> this is the. Uh, you know, I'm just I've just been listening. I can't help but make an observation, Chuck. You maybe have never thought of this. Have you ever noticed you've never seen Roger Littlebrook and? And and Tom, I just lost his name. Tom Burke. Tom Burke in the same room. <laughs> well, are they one in the same? Is that what you Well, saying? I don't know. I don't know. I called Fly Alley a couple of years ago. I seen Tom on the other side of the room, and I hollered, I didn't know Little Brook was going to be here today. <laughs> well, as, as anyone who knows Bobby would know, Bobby might say anything. He's one of the funniest people that I've ever met. Just a delightful person. We're talking about nice people. Of course, the other gentleman, Jay and Michael Norris, excellent people. But that Bobby Simmons, he's he's a little bit on the wacky side. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And I mean, just yeah. always full of joy. He's just a delight to be around. Um, and now, if there's ever anybody that should write a book, it's Bobby. Um, we- I've had the pleasure of getting together with uh, Bobby and several of the wrestlers at these little get-togethers at Bobby's church. And, I mean, the the things that they say and the, and the stories that they tell uh, just needs to be in book form. <laughs> we, uh, <clears throat> I've told this, but uh, Chuck was talking about the stuff he collects. Chuck 
honored me by giving me a window, an original window card from the first match I ever went to. And uh, it is now framed and hanging on a wall in my house. I, it was just one of my prized possessions. I told my kids, I showed it to them, and I said, I know this doesn't mean anything to y'all. I said, but to me, it's very, it's very important. I said, and if I'm gone, please don't throw it away. Give it to somebody that will appreciate it. Right. Yeah, I was reading one of Scott Till's um, back issues of whatever happened to a, a publication. A, another fine gentleman and a fine writer. He's done several things on the uh, Wrestlers of Days Gone By. But uh, in that was an interview with Bobby, and it mentioned, um, you know, Bobby's first card. And I said, well, I think I've got that poster. So um, the next get-together at Bobby's church, um, I took a couple of posters over there and he did indeed verify that that was his first match, so I, I think that I thought that he should have it, and I'm proud to have given it to you, and proud to call you as well as the others that are um, online um, friends. Thank you, Joe. Now, is, do you only collect uh, Atlanta programs, or do, do you have any Columbus oh, no. programs? Oh yeah, yeah, I have some Columbus. Well, programs. there's a particular one uh, that's got uh, the main event is uh, yes, the Garvin brothers against Jerry Oates and the McGuire twins. Uh, the, if you've got a copy of that, I know Jerry would love to have that. Okay, I think wasn't that around seventy four or something like that? Seventy three. Seventy three. Okay. Yeah. See, see, Jerry remembers very well. He could probably tell yeah. you that so night. That date seared in his mind. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking. I was trying to be nice, but when he was talking about, you know, he saw Steinborn and Eddie Gray. Yeah, I, the mascot might have been Jerry Oates. Could have, oh, you know. Think so. Hey, you know, he tells everybody he started about seventy. Seemed like about sixty four. I saw him, but I can't remember for sure. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. Yeah, well, I'll be on the lookout for that program and consider it yours if I can locate it. Let me know. I will do so. I'll be more than happy to do so because I know it has great meaning to you as that poster did to uh, to Bobby. So I I enjoy doing that. I've had um, some wrestlers' families to contact me over the years. Um, I think Jake Smith's um, family contacted me and said that they didn't have hardly anything. Um, Jake Grizzly, the Kentuckian Smith. Yeah. His family contacted me one time and told me that, uh, you know, they really didn't have anything on him. So I located quite a few things, and I sent it to them. Um, I have, uh, well, before started getting together, I think, at um, Bobby's Church with various people, uh, the wife of Danny Little Bear, uh, Mary Little Bear, contacted me, and I sent her quite a few things. Um, there, there are a few others, too, but, uh, you know, it it means a lot to be able to do that. Oh, yeah, and years before Tom Ernesto died, uh, I think he was staying with Jeff Walton out in California, and um, I had the pleasure of talking to him over the phone. And both he and uh, Jody have said, you know, moving around, you know, they don't save, save anything. Um, so I fixed scrapbooks for each of them, and I sent it to Jeff to wow. get Tom. And, uh he was so impressed with he called me, and, and I was shocked to have, um, you know, gotten a call from him. But, you know, it, it just brought me, uh, you know, brought me great pleasure having done that for him and, uh, you know, him appreciating it enough to give me a call. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it, enjoy it. And getting back to the assassins and the and the, the mask, I know their, their biggest 
run or feud in Atlanta was was the off and on with uh, Gunkel and Fuller, but they did a I don't know if it was multi year or not, but they did a thing with with uh, Doug Gilbert as the professional. Oh yeah. How did all that come about? He was initially a protege of theirs, wasn't he? Or built up like a protege to be a protege of theirs? Uh, well, as best I can recall, um, the way that started. He was teaming with them, and they kind of left him to dry, left him, uh, hung him out to dry. It was a TV match, um, and somebody was trying. To, somebody on the opposing team was unmasking. It might have been one of the Torres brothers, and you know they just left him out, left him by himself, left him in the ring by himself. I think that might have been the beginning of the end of their relationship. And um, and so he made it a point that uh, you know he was going to get them in any way he could, and so that uh, that brought about a series of matches with um, different masked men, um, where I think he, um, let's see, Gilbert was the pro, so the assassins came up with a super pro, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, to combat him, and that was Aldo Bogni. Um That was a pro number two. Uh, that was Paul DeMarco. They would come up with these names of people to to go against him. That was a pro number two. That was Paul DeMarco. Um, when when Gilbert, the pro, was um, teaming with Tex McKenzie, then they came up with a big Tex, and that was uh, Stan Frazier, um, right. who, who had wrestled as the convict, I believe, out in uh, California. So those are three in particular that um that they they came up with names against you know against Gilbert or whatever to um to sort of prolong that feud but that was a that was a pretty exciting time and uh it was uh it was a lot of fun the, the back and forth between them and um yeah yeah a lot of fun a lot of fun Bobby Shane was another guy that was in that mix towards the end of it and uh Shane actually uh when he when he first came on TV during that time period was mask and uh, and he was so what, yeah the challenger or the champion yep, or yep, something like that. Yeah, he was like. the challenger, I believe. Yeah. And uh, that was uh, I got out of the army in late '68, uh, and uh, that was uh, that was when this was all hot and heavy, and uh, I just got kind of thrown back in it. I had uh, you know not not been involved in watching wrestling for a couple of years from Atlanta at any rate. But uh, I don't think there was, you know, any more exciting time than right then with the, uh, w- with that particular feud and all the guys that they brought in to try to put up against uh, Doug Gilbert. It was, uh, right. uh, you know, it was it, if if you didn't go to the auditorium, you could follow it from television, and it was, you know, it was a soap opera every every week. I mean, it just continued, and it was uh, it was uh, good TV and it was good wrestling. I enjoyed it very much. Oh yeah, now, was, that was, was Kissy a part of that, uh, Mr. X, Doug who? Scoggins? Was, Doug Scoggins when they when he became Mr. X with the Assassins was was he part of all that or was that a total difference? No, that was that later. later. Yeah, I think that was later like seventy two or something like that. But uh, yeah, that came later. Yeah. Uh, Chuck, what uh, what piece uh, of your collection? Had you really been looking for for some time, and uh, finally was a, you know I, I I know how fun that is because you know I collect comic books, and uh, 
from the Silver Age and, and, and earlier. And, uh, you know, when I come across something that I've been really looking for, for for a while, particularly if, you know, I don't like to con people, but, uh, you know, if I can get a good buy on it, that's great, too. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, something that uh, you really wanted to get a hold of that it uh, took you uh, a while to look and uh, talk to a lot of people before you got. Well, I don't know that I actually have that piece yet. Um, what um, I would most like, and I do collect film and video of wrestling as well, um, I think what I would like more than anything is to see um, something of the assassins when they wore the black mask. They used to wear solid black mask when they first came out. I think I have seen one uh, short piece of footage with that, but um, that or additional photographs, of them, you know, in the black mask. Um, that would probably be, um, I guess, the biggest thing that um, that would mean more to me than anything. Although, um, in later years, um, uh, when I met uh, Joe Hamilton, um, he was doing Deep South Wrestling, I believe, at the time, and and I loaned them some of my 16-millimeter film to, um, to show these old matches on television. And uh, he was kind enough to give me a couple of masks. Uh, he gave me an assassin mask that had been torn and was bloody. Uh, he gave me a mask that uh, he used as the flame. So those important pieces. Um, I, wow. I later acquired one of his robes, uh, one of the long gold robes that they used to wear. I, I later acquired one of those. Um, another piece of uh, memorabilia is um, I have a mask that uh, Bill Eady, the superstar, gave me. Um, one night at the uh, auditorium, I would hang around after the matches, and um, I went up to him and I asked him, I said, well, could you tell me where you get your mask made? I'd like to get one made. He said, well, come next week and I'll give you one. And I wow. said, yeah, sure you will. So um, next week I was out there in the parking lot, and true to his word, uh, he reached in his van. He used to uh, drive a green van, I believe, with North Carolina plates. Uh, he reached in the van and he gave me one of his masks, and um, I still have that one. Um I have masks that our friend Ted Allen, the Nightmare, gave me. Um, those are important pieces. And I have the Texas Heavyweight Wrestling Belt that I got off of eBay. Um, that was on eBay along with the junior, the Texas Junior Heavyweight Belt. Uh, I wasn't interested in the um, junior belt, but I was interested in the heavyweight belt because of so many big names had worn that belt. So, uh, again, the fool spent a lot of money. Um, I got them both, and another guy who later became a, a good friend of mine, uh, Bob Ryler, um, was interested in the junior belt. So he bought the junior belt off of me so I could recoup some of my money. But uh, yeah, I have the Texas heavyweight belt that was used back in the 60s, uh, late 50s, I think, early 60s back in uh, Yeah, I've got pictures of Texas. guys everywhere from uh, Sonny Myers uh, in the 50s. I know it goes back to the early 50s because mm-hmm. I've got a picture of Sonny Myers with wearing it, and they uh, when he came through Mobile in 55 or 56, they put a picture of him with that belt in the paper. Mm-hmm. So I know it goes back at least that far. Steinborn held yeah. it. Right. As a matter of fact, Dickie Steinborn, um, you know, he knew that I had it, and he told me that one day when he came through here that he was going to get in touch with me because I used to correspond with him and talk to him. He told me he was going to come through here and we'd take a picture together. Well, I hadn't seen him, hadn't seen him. But, um, 
But anyway, Dicky Dicky's uh, in the process of moving uh, moving back to Orlando. Really? He's he's moving into the the house that uh, Milo owned down there, and, and so he's on his way relocating from Virginia down there. Okay, well, I hope he's doing well. Tell him I said hello. And since Orlando is between Virginia and, uh, since we're between Virginia and Orlando, maybe he'll swing back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, I, I haven't talked to him. I know uh, Scott Thiel spent some time with him a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he, Scott was telling me about it because I, I had asked him if he'd talked to Dickie lately. Mm-hmm. But uh, Scott has started a uh, Facebook page called the uh Dick Steinborn archives that that he's putting up some stuff. I think Dickie had uh, had given him some some of his memorabilia and stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, Dickie was an accomplished photographer because he looked he took a lot of photos um, for national magazines. Um, so yeah, he's an accomplished photographer. That he was. That he Isn't was. It? Yep. Uh, Chuck, uh, we talk about All South from time to time. Uh, as a fan of that era, uh, was it was it a big shock to you when uh, when All South split from the Atlanta Booking Office? Oh yeah, very much so. Um, the I guess the biggest surprise was uh, Tom, the assassin Tom Ernesto, got on television. And he said that uh, he was about to do something that people told him was going to cost him a million dollars, but he was going to do it anyway. And all of a sudden, he rips his mask off on television. Had never seen him. Uh, I had seen pictures of, you know, who people said he was, but, I mean, that was a total shock to me. Uh, But, yeah, yeah, it it was a surprise. But, uh, again, another part of a a fun time. And, um, you know, had a lot of good matches with the Gunkle group. Um, a lot of good matches with the uh, Paul Jones group, and that meant a whole lot of wrestlers came in the area and so forth. So it was uh, it was an exciting time, but yeah, it was uh, it was quite a surprise, quite a surprise. Between between the IWA and All South and the Atlanta office, there, I think the Atlanta fans uh, got got you know got a really a big array of stars that they never. I won't say never would have seen, but it would have taken many years to see the number of guys that they saw within that two-year period. Right, you're quite right, because each organization was competing against the other and trying to bring in new people and trying to bring in bigger names and so forth. So so you're definitely right about that, Jay. A lot of people came through here. How did your parents feel about you as a young man hanging around in the parking lot after the matches? Let's just get right <laughs> down to it, Chuck. Okay. <laughs> well, um, most of the time until I started driving, um, my mother would take me to the matches and come back and pick me up later. And um, she didn't really have a problem with it. However, there was one problem. I won't say this was a problem one time, but uh, I was standing outside to uh, to get autographs. And, I can't remember whether she had come to pick me up that night or whether she had actually stayed because when when I first started going, um, you know, both went with me for a while. Then my mother continued to go. But anyway, I was outside um, trying to get autographs, and Lenny Montana comes out. He's got on this black leather jacket, black leather hat, and my mother was standing right there with me, and he said, said, get away from me. I don't like women. So that kind of... That kind of threw me aback, but um, 
I really didn't have any problem. Uh, my mother trust, trusted me and knew I would be where I was supposed to be when I was supposed to be. Uh, I can't remember one time I strayed from that. And uh, uh, this friend of mine who went to the matches with me, uh, we wanted to find out who the Infernos were. So we waited until after the matches, and we saw them come out the door and go to their car. So we take off running down Cortland Street. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. So we take off running down Cortland Street um, toward, uh, let's see, was it Martin Luther King? Yeah, toward Martin Luther King, I think. We got about halfway down. But sure enough, when we got down there, when they passed by, they had taken their mask off. Of course, we didn't know who they were, but we could see that one of them was wearing glasses. And, of course, that was Rocky Smith because I think he did wear glasses. So uh, we kind of strayed that time because we ran way down Cortland Street trying to see who the Infernos were. Yeah, we're, we're getting into talking about right. We're getting into talking about writing a book right here, Chuck. A young man willing to do all this stuff, running down Cortland Street on Friday night. You know, it's uh, uh, it's uh, it's uh, you know, of course, at the time it was exciting to you. You didn't think about anything was going to happen to you. You know, right? And times were a little bit different back then too. We didn't sure. have all the craziness that we've got yeah. now. Chuck, let me ask you a question. I don't know if we've ever talked about this or not. And this. Hope this comes out the way I intended to. Okay. Chuck, you, well, you, it, were, you were coming it, up. You were, you know, segregation was still a very big part in the early '60s. Right. Uh, and and at the auditorium in Atlanta, for people that never went, uh, the black crowd sat in the top balcony. Yep, that's right. And and you know everybody, everybody. I know what I know what the white supremacists thought. Oh, we got them way up there where they belong. Those were actually the best seats in the building. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. Pretty because good. you were looking into the ring, you weren't looking through the ropes. But anyway, right. did that ever cause you any problem? Did you ever have any issues with that at all? Uh, I never really thought about it. I was enjoying. Well, the I, I knew so you much. didn't, but I just, uh, I just, I always, I wondered if that was ever an issue. Uh, uh, you know, if you ever, because there were some crazy people, even though it wasn't as crazy oh, yeah. at the time. But mm-hmm. yeah. Well, there was one time that, uh, in particular, that I was concerned. I forget who was involved in the match, but um, the my my brethren upstairs started throwing bottles into the ring from mm-hmm. upstairs. That scared me because I figured that I might get locked up or something. But yeah, yeah. that scared me quite a bit. And um, Dick Dunn, um, I think this might have been when he was wrestling as one of the Red Raiders. I can't Red Raiders, remember yeah. for sure. Yeah, I know he. He did wrestle here as himself and as one of the Red Raiders. But right. I, I can recall that uh, he used to um, look upstairs at uh, at myself and my brethren and pretend like he had a shotgun or a machine gun. A machine gun, yeah. I can, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. He used to point it up there, you know, like he was shooting or whatever. Uh, so that's something that, uh, that I remember quite well. Um, those are two things that stand out, but... Um, and I can't remember what year it was. It might have been '68 that um, I finally got to sit, you know, downstairs on the uh, main floor. And I can recall having seen, um, you know, others of my ilk having sat down there prior to that. And I said, "What are they doing down there?" But then, then eventually, you know, um, I, I I got up the nerve, I guess, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to sit down there. That was. Uh, when you were, when, I'm glad to say you. I'm glad you didn't say you were one throwing the bottles because 
I've been on the other end of some of them bottles being lost out of that balcony. Yep, I, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. So yes, when you started going, when your parents were bringing bringing you down there, uh, did you become a regular on Friday nights or right away, or did that just kind yeah. of uh, happen as you as things went along? Oh no, no, I became a regular right away, and uh, <laughs> remained a regular probably up until late seventies, maybe eighty two. Uh, I remained a regular, and um, I can recall having gone to matches at Ponce Leon Ballpark. Um, I went to matches out at Lakewood. They had matches out at Lakewood sometimes. Uh-huh. So, no, I, I, I became a fan right away, right away. Did you, uh, and, uh, did you go to the, the last show at the City Auditorium when it closed? I think I did. I think I did. Yeah. Did you ever, uh, that, uh, after you got involved in doing all that, did you ever start going to uh, making trips and going to wrestling shows outside of the Atlanta area, like uh, out of the state? No, no, never did that except for when I went to Detroit uh, for for a relative's funeral. Um, one of my cousins was a big wrestling fan, and he suggested we go to wrestling. So I went to wrestling. Um, I think that's the only time I've ever been to a live match outside of Atlanta was then. Never been um, to any adjoining cities in the area. Never been out of the state anywhere except for that one time in Detroit. And I think that was in 65, I believe it was. Wow. And the main event was still Bobo Brazil and the Sheik, wasn't it? <laughs> Probably so. Probably so. I know they were on the card. And, uh, let me see. I can remember, I think Gary Hart was on the card. Paul DeMarco, I've still got that program too, but I think Paul DeMarco was on the card. Uh, but yeah, you're probably right. It was probably the Sheik and uh, and Bobo Brazil. Now on the cover of the program, I can remember Bulldog Brow was on the cover, so he was probably on the card too. Yeah. Mm. All right, gentlemen, I can't begin to tell you how much of a pleasure this has been, and and how pleased I am to have been in such elite company and oh Bobby Simmons. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, I have to go now. Uh, it has been a pleasure. I appreciate you inviting me well, to, thank you, to Chuck. be on the show. Pardon. I said we'll have to have you back on because uh, you uh, you you got a you got a home here. Once once you become a guest here, once you've got a home here. So uh, anytime right. that. Uh, you want to call in, you've got the number now, and we've got your number, so we'll make sure we get you on, or we'll plan another evening with you, you know, because uh, okay. there's still a, a lot we didn't we didn't touch on. Uh, I wanted to, want to talk about all the other mass teams that came through here, like the Red Raiders, as we mentioned, the, the Medics right. were here, the Infernos were here. Oh, yeah, got, got to talk assailants. about the Infernos, yeah. And uh, you know, I just before you go though, did any of the, any other mask teams uh, catch your attention like the Assassins did originally? The Infernos. Um, they were probably the most colorful tag team. They would wear these long, um, flowing robes into the ring. Sometimes I don't know whether they were reversible, but sometimes they would be gold. Sometimes they would be blue. But they had these long, flowing robes. J.C. Dykes, their manager, had the red hair. He would sometimes have on a tux or a white jacket, and he would be blowing a whistle. He'd have a canteen for his uh, for his team. And also they had um, Rocky Smith supposedly had a loaded boot that he was tapping right. and kick people with it. 
And, of course, they had the ability to throw fire, and they, they burned several wrestlers with the fire. So, yeah, they, that was an unforgettable tag team. Oh, yeah, Atlanta had a bunch of them. Well, Chuck, we appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully you'll uh, things won't be too dead there for you tonight. Well, let's hope they won't be too dead. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. Inside jokes, folks. Chuck, Chuck uh, owns a uh, mortuary, so uh, and, you know that's that's kind of now that I think about it, that's kind of uh, discerning with a, uh, a a gentleman who owns a mortuary and his uh, his email address is is assassin. So you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that's we we enjoyed it very much. He's going into always. business for himself with an email like this. Hey, well, I'll have enjoyed to see it. if I can I can do that. <laughs> All right, Chuck. Well, thank you very much. Okay, gentlemen, I thank you again, and I appreciate it very much. And uh, and Jerry, I'll see if I can find that program for you. Please do. I'll put <laughs> I will do so. And you gentlemen have a good evening. You good too, night, Chuck. Chuck. Take care. Okay. Speaking of stuff, Jerry, did you get that uh, message I sent you on Facebook or that photo I sent you? I'm sure I did. Which one was that? It's. A, I'm trying to verify that it's you. There's a guy in the ring with Ronnie Garvin, and it looks like you. But the thing is, I can't. The the uh, when you would have been working, I know you worked with Garvin down in Florida. But this guy looks a little bit more like you, more towards the, the middle seventies. But Garvin, the way he looks, doesn't look like he did in the middle seventies. So I wasn't sure if it was you or not. Send it back to me. All right. I will, and the guy's got his back turned, but and he's he's wearing uh, blue tights and red boots like I know you did it, it, from time to time. I so I just thought, yeah, I did do that. I thought maybe it was you, but I couldn't tell. But I'll send it. I'll shoot it to you again. Please do. Did you get the pictures from Scott Deal today, uh, Michael? Yes, I did. Uh, did you get them, Jerry? No. <clears throat> I got to make sure you get them. I'll have to send them to you tomorrow. I, I didn't get any pictures. What's wrong you with didn't, me? You didn't get it. Well, it was. I guess Scott's doing some research. Uh, okay. He he sent me a picture of these two girls, Geraldine, and uh, <laughs> I can't remember what the other one was. Oats. I think it's Jerry's sisters. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> I'm sure it's a pic. Two pictures of Jerry and with uh, uh, he put long hair on them and oh my he said, god he said well, I'm trying to confirm these are, are Jerry's sisters. <laughs> there were oh, a state pandemonium. I thought everybody would have got them. I uh, I I, I messaged him back and from. I said are these are these the old sisters that that uh, wound up marrying the McGuire twins? <laughs> <laughs> I know where those pictures come from. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I want to know where those pictures came from, Jerry. Is that, is that part of the Steinborn collection? <laughs> that's exactly where it come from. Oh, that sounds like a uh, you know a very elite collection right there. I think I got one of those sick pictures. Shoot it to me anyhow to make sure. I'll, I'll send them to you in the morning. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, moving along, we've got uh, Dennis Mitchell on the line. Uh, Dennis, you there in Alabama? Yeah, I am. How are y'all doing tonight? Doing good, good, Dennis. Good, I'm glad to hear that. I tell you, that was a great guest y'all had. 
Chuck, he knows his stuff, man. I tell uh, you. Chuck, Chuck is a, is a one of a kind guy. He's he's uh, a good friend to all of us, and and uh, he's been a big help to me on researching stuff and and everything. And I had I had heard the name Chuck Thornton for years before I'd met him. You know, see his name periodically in magazines and and everything, but. Uh, you know, because he provided a lot of uh, photos and stuff for a lot of a lot of the magazines, um, that, you know, the national magazines that had anything to do with Atlanta. Chuck Thornton's name was always involved in it, and it was a thrill to meet him several years ago at, when I guess it was one of our get-togethers um, here, and then he made the trip to Mobile a couple of times. And, uh, yeah, that's good. Just, just a great guy. Oh, good. I was going to ask y'all too. Uh, other than Chuck, when he wrote for Atlanta Wrestling, who wrote the, mostly the wrestling stuff from Gulf South? I mean, Gulf Coast Wrestling down in Mobile when you was growing up, Michael. As far you mean, uh, provided pictures. Um, yes, sir. Well, you know, we didn't really have programs a whole lot off and on. They would sell, you know, sell photos periodically. The only time we had programs on a regular basis um was in 1974 for a run of about six months when leo garibaldi was in the office right he came down there to help uh help kelly with the book and uh and everything and then but uh and that was the only time we ever had programs on a general regular basis now back in the 60s they would do uh put together ones that were kind of a combination. They sell them at, in um, Pensacola on Tuesday nights and Mobile on Wednesday nights. And it was a kind uh-huh. of a combination thing. Don Fields put those together, but then that only lasted three or four years before they quit doing those. I mean, yeah, periodically they put together some kind of photo album or something and sell at the matches. But other than that, they, they never really had anything regular. Yeah, I got you. Who did it when Fuller took over... Gulf Coast and made it Southeastern Wrestling. Who did the programs for Southeastern when Ron and Robert got it started? Uh, the only time there again, they didn't do anything. Uh, the only time that they did something uh, on a full-time basis was uh, at the very beginning when Les Thatcher was part of it. Les, the, Les put them together. Man, that's, that's something else there, guys. I tell you, I wish I'd have kept some of those programs. I didn't I didn't think they would be worth something when I was a kid. You know, I thought it, I thought the wrestling roller coaster would still be going up and still going down. You know what I mean? Sometimes yeah. I take things for granted in life, you know, and and all that good stuff and and all that. I, I was going to ask y'all too. Uh, when you when y'all going to try to get old Scott Till on the show again? He's busier now that he's retired than he was when he was working. He's he's finally got time to travel. Um, and uh, like I said, he was he spent some time with Dick Steinborn here in the last couple of weeks. And <clears throat> just sometime in March, he was down, uh, spent a week with uh, Frankie Kane down in uh, Northwest Florida. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's putting together stuff and and uh, but. Uh, We'll we'll have to have get Scott back on here at some point, but uh, he's hard to yeah. catch up with sometimes. I understand. <laughs> now, that, now that he's retired, he's hard to get harder to catch up with than he was when he was uh, was working. And we we're talking about memorabilia, Jerry. Did you keep uh, 
did you keep much of your stuff with you? I know you've got a lot of your gear, but did you keep uh, any of your promo some. photos or magazine them. articles about you I or anything have, like that? I don't have stuff that I should have, no. Man. Well, well, Michael, I was going to ask y'all, too. I read on what Wrestling Observer, the voice of Pittsburgh wrestling died, Bill Cardelli. Yeah. Died, I read on there. He's 87 years old. I was wondering, did y'all, any of y'all ever had a chance to meet him at, at like, at Cauliflower Alley or anywhere like that in person? I don't know. Did he ever come to any of those, Bobby? No, I never met him. Never met uh, him. Yet. You know, Bill, Bill, once again, was, as I mentioned earlier, was one of those, you know, TV radio guys that never quit working. I mean, he even had a gig booked for a autograph show here in July. Uh, he Man. he was doing a four-hour radio gig uh, on a local Pittsburgh station uh, a year before he got ill. So, you know, guys in, in that kind of business, you know, they always felt like, you know, we've talked about wrestling. They, they they give up a gig and somebody else is going to get it and they're you know and and there goes their paycheck. Yeah, I think it was just kind of ingrained. You 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 worked and uh, no matter what how you were feeling or whatever you were doing, and uh, and so uh, everything I see on him uh, follows the pattern. He he was he people would listen to him and he was still working right up to the very end. Well, you know, at least he lived a long time, guys. I tell you. Yeah. Guess he he did do he did something he liked and loved you know not many people y'all did the same thing not many people can say that these days you know what you know uh, well you know uh, as I understand it now from the the young group they call the millennials uh, that ended about thirty years old they they don't understand the idea or the idea of working somewhere for a long period of time doesn't uh, you know doesn't mean anything to them so it's just where can they go to uh, uh, you know, further their career, and uh, when can I move to another job, and and uh, any type of nostalgia or thing of that nature relating to work is it, just not there. So it's, uh, you know, a totally different ballgame. Yeah, it really is. Well, guys, y'all keep up good work. I try to get it, hang up. I'm going to keep listening, y'all. Yeah, it was a good show tonight with Chuck. Right. I really appreciate y'all. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Right, take care, Dennis. <clears throat> Just talking about the uh, the magazines and the programs and stuff. <clears throat> I used to uh, a lot of the towns. Mr. Ward would do it. Uh, Nikki would do it. They'd do it in Atlanta. You know, they would always have. Uh, they'd throw ten or twelve programs in the dressing room, and most of the time the guys would look at them and throw them right back down. Well, I kind of got in the habit there when I first started. I would I would. Uh, uh, I'd grab everything that was laying around the dressing room, just throw it in my bag. And, uh, you know, bring them home, throw them in a box or whatever. And uh, a few years ago, I guess, I don't know, it's been five or six years, uh, my buddy Randy Corin, uh, his daughter-in-law was on uh, eBay looking around one day, and some guy on there said he was interested in buying some old Atlanta wrestling programs. So... Uh, Randy had about a hundred and something, I don't know, a little over a hundred, but these were all from when we were kids going to the matches in Atlanta. Everything he had was from Atlanta. And it was going back into that early 70 through whatever time frame. Well, he, he contacted this guy, and this guy wound up giving 
this guy wound up giving him almost $400 for a little over 100 programs. So I was out in my garage messing around one day, and I come across that box of all those programs I had. And uh, I, I could not tell you the guy's name if you were offering a reward because I let Randy handle the whole thing. But I went, I had a little over 600 of them. And uh, some of them were duplicates, but there was a lot of programs there from, from just everywhere. Uh, I wound up selling them for $900. Wow. And I'm thinking, all those window cards that I threw away and all those things that I thought would never be worth anything that I just never kept, I mean, I just, you know. But Well, yeah, it, and the idea is there, if everybody had kept everything, then it wouldn't have become so valuable, you know, Bobby. Right. But, uh, yeah, yeah there's it's a lot of money out there for, for that kind of stuff if people have it. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, yep. <clears throat> just based on, you know, Chuck didn't really get into what all he owns, but he's got, you know, the uh, – the window cards that he must have because they were all put up in his dad's uh, funeral home back in the day. And he his kept funeral home was on Prior Street at one time, right downtown. So he, I don't know how long they put them in there, but yeah, he, I'm sure he got them every week. Yeah, and and you know guys like him and, and Tom Burke. I, now I've been to Tom Burke's home in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. His whole upstairs is nothing but it's a museum basically. And, uh, you know, uh, my friend Chris Swisher that lives in uh, Huntsville, um, he's got a uh, garage apartment that's nothing but, but his wrestling memorabilia. And he's got, he bought um, <clears throat> the um, Little Al Vavasour. Uh, Jerry, I know that's a name you know. Anybody Who is that? The, the Little Al Vavasour. Yeah. Took photos for uh, McGurk. Oh yeah, we'd come to Atlanta periodically and, and take photos of the guys here. But um, he was he was Leroy McGurk's you know personal photographer, and he also sold programs and, and stuff like that. And he lived in um, uh, where did he live? Baton Rouge, I believe. And uh, he would sell programs there and and, and, uh, LaRanger and and various places. But you think of all the photos, especially that uh, when Wrestling Review, before they got sold to the Canadian company, um, just about what wasn't a little Al Vavasour photo was a Gene Gordon photo. And uh, But Chris Holmes uh, has... The entire Little Al collection. He's got all of his negatives, and I, I didn't get a chance to ask Chuck, but it, I believe Chuck and Chris went in together and bought the majority of uh, Gene Gordon's stuff that was existing. So there's there's stuff out there. Jim Elby was another one that had a, a ton of stuff. Um, so you, there's stuff out there. It's just. Uh, but you know, it's just like I, I would be if I still had all the stuff I had when I was a kid, all the photos and stuff that I collected over time. It's it's hard to get those guys to <laughs> to part with any of it. <clears throat> yeah, 
Yeah, I had quite a collection of the uh, after mags and uh, the, uh, the the Melby Kiter magazines, uh, going from about '68 up to about '78. Uh, uh, and uh, when when uh, I moved, uh, I just didn't have room for them anymore. And the uh, guy that I knew who had moved out to Las Vegas, uh, he wanted to broker them for somebody. And you know, I I virtually just there were probably three or four boxes. This was just of magazines, not of programs. And uh, I, I shipped them out there to him, and you know, he 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 gave me a little bit of the money, but I I really was, you know, at, at that point I was. Uh, it, it would it would have been harder for me to look at them and try to categorize them than to just say take them. Uh, so uh, I, I let him do that. So I got about twenty five percent of what he sold them. When I gave all my magazines away. And then I started uh, when when I discovered eBay. I started buying some of the ones that I had back when I was a kid. I started buying them again, and that that got expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and then I lost all the ones that I rebought, you know, in the in the the fire at my my parents' house. And uh, so it's just. But I had a scrapbook that I started in 1971 when I was 12 years old, <clears throat> of newspaper clippings from Mobile. And my my grandmother would send every week, every Monday morning, I'd get or Tuesday morning, I'd get a, an envelope from Pensacola, Florida, where my grandmother had cut out the, the newspaper clipping from the Sunday paper in Pensacola and mailed it to me. And uh, and I had I had I I don't know how many photos you know of guys and autographs and everything else and somewhere. Along the lines between moving and getting divorced, I lost that scrapbook, and uh, I keep hoping it'll mysteriously show up one day. But I have no clue. But there's, you know, I've I've managed to replace some of the photos that I had that I remembered I had, but some of them I'll never be able to find again, and uh, unless I find that original one. But uh, and I, I managed to replace all the clip, well, the clippings that I had from. Mobile, I've managed to replace, and part of the ones that that I had from Pensacola, but uh, and that that all that stuff's up on what's on my website now. So, but uh, here's a name Jerry will remember. She sat on the front row in Columbus for a hundred years. Her name was Mary Bunch. Oh yeah. And when Miss Bunch, Miss Bunch was good friends with my my first wife's parents. And uh, she had a granddaughter that she was raising that was that was good friends with my with my first wife. And, and of course, when I married into that family, I became friends with Mary. Well, when Mary died, her daughter contacted my my. He's always going to be my father-in-law. She contacted him and said that all of this wrestling stuff that Mary had, she wanted to give to somebody that would appreciate it, and offered it to me. And I said sure. So I went and got it. And uh, the uh, uh, the problem was that they, it had been moved into a storage building outside, and a lot of it had gotten wet, and it was mildewed. And I just I saved what I could. Most of the pictures that I was able to save, I kept. They were all made with a little Polaroid Instamatic camera, nothing very fancy. Uh, I got some pictures from Columbus that are of guys that you know in the ring that uh, uh, you know they're all. I, most of them are back there in a box. I, just nothing really, 
Yeah, uh, nothing fantastic as far as pictures are concerned. But there is a uh, there was a bunch of magazines. You were talking about selling them, Jay. Made me think of this. I was in the same boat. I had this box of magazines, and I didn't care nothing about going through them. I mean, they, you know, I appreciated them. I kind of scanned through them, made sure there wasn't any pictures of me in there that I might want. And I called Ted Allen and told him I had them, asked him if he wanted them. And he said, well, what do you want for them? And I said, Ted, I don't want to charge you a dime. You just got to come get them. Well, he drove down here and picked them up. So I didn't think anything about it. I said, here, Ted, you can have them. You're welcome to them. When we got to Mobile the following March for our wrestling reunion, Ted had taken every one of those magazines. He had went through them, and anybody that had a picture that came to that reunion, he had marked it with a little sticky. And he had them spread out on the bed in his room, and he was charging guys $2 a magazine. So the <laughs> magazines I gave him uh, for people that wanted to buy them that had their picture in it. And I told him, I said, uh, is, uh, how about a little share of the money? He said, oh, you gave these to me. I went, yes, yep. but I didn't know you was going to sell them. So anyway, that's just, you know, we all learn. I think Ted's last name wasn't really Lipscomb. I think it was Smith. I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> Everybody talks about how tight Joe Scarpa was. Ted Allen made Joe Scarpa look like a big spender. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's that's another one who had a a huge collection of stuff. Uh, videotapes. I've said before that Ted Allen was the first person I ever met with VCR, and he had tapes from all over the place. And uh, it's unfortunate that that when when Ted we lost Ted that uh, all that stuff was was done away with. I don't think some of it. I think uh, some guys may have been able to rescue but i think most of it just went by the wayside most of it got thrown away because his kids didn't didn't appreciate it and didn't didn't care anything about it Hmm. well all i want is nose brothers jim that's the shirt that's all i want since I know I can't get one that uh, that was sold for a dollar in Kansas City, I can't get one of those. That was in Wichita. I'll never forget that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I ought to start scouring eBay for people from Wichita and see if they got one they can put on eBay. Yeah, that punch truck fighter's probably got to have one. Idiot. Were those pictures, do those have your photos on them? Uh, Jared, did they just say Oath Brothers on them? No, it had my picture. Hmm. Yeah, I'll never forget that. <laughs> like I said, I got good news and I got bad news. I said, what's that? He said, Billy sold all your shirts. I said, what's the bad news? He said he sold them for a dollar a piece. <laughs> It took me about 15 years so I could kind of laugh at that. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it. Fi- I'm glad it finally happened, Jerry, because you know some of those it things can just happened. fester in your mind. You know. 
Every time I run into a punch drunk guy, I want to nail him. <laughs> <sighs> well, gentlemen, I'm going to have to slide. All right, Jerry. I enjoy tonight. It was just All right, Jerry. I did too. Stay in the shade safe. down there. Right, have you. a I'll take care of you. Good, have a good day tomorrow on the uh, beach. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Good night. Bye, guys. Good night. See you. Okay, we got Dan Masters, and I'm going to see if I can get him on the air here. He's been waiting for a while. Dan Masters, Man, you're on the I air. Hate, I hate I missed uh, Jerry, but shouts out to him if he uh, catches it or you tell him I said hello next week. I love you guys every week, man, but I don't get to listen live. I called tonight to ask about a guy that I see any day I choose to go to Santa Monica. I'm over in Long Beach, but if I go to Santa Monica, there's a guy that hangs out down by the pier, and you never know when you get in these conversations whether they're lies or, or truth or not, but I found little information but not a lot. So Tony Rocco from California. You guys know anything about Tony Rocco? You can fill me in Tony, on Yeah, Tony Rocco, he's originally from, from England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a, he was a great worker. I saw Tony uh, a lot in Tampa. He was, he was in and out of Tampa quite a bit, but, yeah, his – uh, his biggest pushes were probably out there in L.A., and then uh, he worked for McGurk for, uh, off and on for a lot of years, too. Um, great guy, great worker. He's so friendly. He'll sit and talk to you for hours if you can't get away. But the great thing about this guy, you don't, he won't give you his phone number or anything, but if you want to talk to him, he's always in the same spot every day of the week. If the sun's up, he's up with his shirt off. He's still in great shape. I don't yeah, know how old he is. I had heard that he hung around the the the, uh, the beach in Santa Monica. He's there every day. Every day. But he's got some really wild stories. He'll tell me about Fat Patterson and all these guys and stuff. And I'm like, man, yeah, he's a nice guy. I just wondered if he was legit or not. You oh, yeah. Say, he's yeah, very, very legit. He was... Uh, um, He's no relation to to Tony Rocco, which is a, uh, a big star in England. But he was Tony was probably a decade after or, or before uh, Mark Rocco, Rollerball Rocco, and uh, a lot of a lot of uh, promotions would spell his name differently. They'd spell it Rocca. Tony Rocco, right? <clears throat> it's Rocco is what it, what it is, but they would spell it as Rocca, and they would bill him is Antonio Rocca hoping people would think that he was Argentina Rocca and come, oh, you know, see him. Okay. But uh, that was that was early in his career. But, yeah, he was he was legit, and he was a great worker. Great yeah, worker. Yeah. How old the guy is? I mean, it doesn't say on the clock. Um, well, he was out. probably, uh, the last time I saw him was in Tampa in probably 77, and he was probably in his early 40s then. So hmm. he's, he's late 70s, probably early 80s. I, we were out riding bikes out at Venice Beach with uh, Rob Van Dam, and, and I think he could still roll around a little bit. He looks, at, he looks at him. Sometimes we get in these conversations. I think the two of those guys want to roll around with each other out there on Santa Monica on the sands. So. Oh, yeah, he's 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 definitely legit. He was a, he was a great guy. I don't know what uh, 
I guess he wound up his career out there and back out in California. I don't know what he did after he got out of the wrestling business, but uh said in this uh the classics board that he had a gas station out there in Santa Monica, so hmm. he owned a gas station or something. Would work on the boys' cars when they would be in and out of the area, so but anyway, that's interesting. You never know who you're going to run into. It's very rare to run into. Like when I lived out there in Georgia, there was always guys at the independent shows, whether it be, you know, Tommy Rich or Billy Eadie or Rock and Roll or any of these guys. But out here, there aren't really many uh, uh, old timers or young gentlemen that pass the knowledge around. The only other one, maybe you guys fill me in on a story or two, Jesse Hernandez. Yeah, Jesse, uh, Jesse's. Um trained a lot of guys and he, I think he's got his he's still got his own little independent promotion out there that uh he does. that he does. But Jesse uh his big claim to fame was in the dying days of uh of Los Angeles, the the LaBelle territory. They had a gimmick out there, a guy called the Monster. Mm. And uh, he he looked like the Frankenstein monster, and he wore these big huge, huge shoes. Well, that was that was Jesse. Um, yeah, he's a nice guy too. Very he he has his like you said, he's got his promotion. They run, they're active, they draw really strong. He trains guys and uh, real friendly guy. So, but, but those are the only two out here that really know the uh, old time stories that I've been able. Well, to. you know, well, the, I'm sure if you have, look hard enough, you can find Rock Riddle. The story details may not be true, but he'll tell you some stories. I've got stories, <laughs> and I'll just care to not share those rock riddle stories. Well, let me ask nice. you, since since you're out out in in, uh, in California, do you, have you ever uh, ventured out to one of the uh, Lucha Underground tapings? I was at the very first taping. Uh, they did two weeks of TV that day, uh, and they offered me a gig, and like other things in life, I, I I screwed that one over on myself. So, but yeah, I mean it's pretty hot out there. Actually, with the first taping, they were paying people to come and sit in the crowd. Really? Now you can't get a ticket. Yeah, now yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable yeah. what they're doing at the day. Yeah, I, 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 well, I never I never miss. I watch it every week. In fact, they just finished their season last night um, with their big end of the season show that they did and. Uh, um, a lot of people I, I, I know don't aren't into lucha as much, but they're you know they're more much more traditional than anybody else that I've seen. You know, of course they're they're still a bunch of high spots and stuff, but that's what what lucha always was about. Um, mm-hmm. But the tradition, as far as the masks and all that stuff, I I enjoy the show. They have um, a lot of those lucha independent uh, cards out here in this area. What really amazed me when I moved out here was in Georgia, I'd get in the car with Wardell Walker on a Friday morning. We'd go eight hours to Nashville or eight hours to Miami or all these long distance trips out here. I live in Long Beach and within an hour of my home, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there's at least minimum of three events going on each day, every weekend. Wow. Whether Have it's a you, um... show or Jesse show or, or championship wrestling from Hollywood where I work twice a month. I mean, there's just so much going on. Another guy that just popped into my mind. Have you run across uh, Rick Drayson? I have never met Rick in person, but we corresponded on Facebook a few times. Rick's a good guy. 
He's he's a good guy. I've I've been uh, meaning to ask him about about doing our show, but even though he didn't spend a whole lot of time in the South, he came through Mobile for a couple of weeks, but that was about it. But he's uh, he's a lot like Pepper Martin, where he had uh, a whole different career between uh, acting gigs and uh, commercials and all that. He was a Marlboro man at one time. Back and created took- the gold and world gym logos. Yep, yep. Isn't that something? I mean, everyone's seen those. I mean, that's – I guess he was in bad health a week or two ago, maybe a month now yeah. something happened. Yeah, saw he was in the hospital for a while. Well, then I just threw out another name that uh, uh, I think he lives in Glendale is uh, Pepper Martin. Hmm. I have to look into that. Yeah, they don't have any reunions or anything from what I'm aware of, other than the Cauliflower Alley, of course, that's every year, but they don't have anything here in L.A., That's a shame because I'm sure there's well I don't know how many guys are still still alive out there. Way uh, uh, Paul DeMarco lived uh, I think he lives up towards Northern California though. I think mm-hmm. he was in San Francisco and I'm assuming he's still alive. I haven't heard of him. Us losing him, but uh, I would imagine there's there's a handful of guys out there still. Keep pushing on and keep it alive as best we can through the radio yep. show here. That's good. I'm glad you guys are doing it. I got a, a surprise that's been spoiled. Bambi, Selena Majors is en route from Georgia to my place right now. She should be here Saturday night for the relaunch of the women's wrestling. So we'll see what happens with that. Well, good. Much luck with that. Can't wait to see you. Thank you, All guys. Right, I'll be listening. Take care. Take Have care, a good, okay. good night. Right, bye-bye. You know that that Los Angeles territory baffles me. Um, you know that other than New York, it was the second largest uh, you know media center for all those years. Mm-hmm. And why that territory died the way it did in the in the mid seventies? <clears throat> yeah, I just uh, it, it just baffled me because when I there again when I was a kid reading all the the, the magazines, you know the Blassie Tolos uh, right. Feud and then you know Mil Mascaris and uh, you know Kenji Shibuya and Mr. Saito and Gorman and Goliath and you know the just L.A. just had a a ton of what seemed like you know interesting stuff and then you know seventy four seventy five they come up with the the monster and the, the the bionic wrestler which was Lars Anderson <laughs> you know and it just it just went well, down drugs, that can be there. true. What's that? I said he had so many drugs in his system that could be true. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they had they had a lot of TV too there. You know, between Los Angeles and then, uh, San yeah. Francisco too up there, there was there was a lot of activity. And but it just you know I guess the last big hurrah was was probably seventy five seventy six with Piper and uh, you know that was his first territory and. Uh, Chavo Guerrero was a was a huge the last big star out there, but you know by by the time seventy six seventy seven was around, you know their top star was uh, S D Jones and Walter Johnson and and you know fifty year old Victor Rivera was their top well, heel. And didn't they run two shows a week at the Olympic? 
Yeah, they taped they it. They had a Wednesday night Friday. Yeah. yeah, they had a didn't they have a Wednesday night show and then a Saturday night show or uh, yeah, and I'm, I think the Wednesday night was their TV taping. Right. Um, no, and they, they did they did they did a live TV show I think for a while too. I mean, it's there was just a lot of stuff happening there. Yeah. It just I you know Steve Yohe is another historian that uh, he's he's the 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 LA guru. Um, you know I've talked to him about it and and you know he said Michael Bell just ran it into the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know of course the Olympic uh, Auditorium it got to be where the neighborhood where it was 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 a bad neighborhood. That that building is now a church. It's a mega church. Um, but <clears throat> I just it just has always baffled me that LA went downhill as fast as it did, and just yep. just gone. I mean, in reading you know, about it in the early seventies, and that's when I was reading all the magazines in the early seventies. Yeah, you would right. have thought that was the greatest. That was the greatest place in the world for wrestling was right there. Yeah. Uh, speaking of. Uh, Great things. Uh, this is uh, this gentleman's been holding for a while. Uh, uh, Mr. Smith, are you there? Yes. Yes. Hey, uh, hey you know, Carl Lawler, he used to be the promoter there in L.A. too, you know it? Yeah, I think he did uh, some of the smaller towns around L.A., like Modesto and, and places like that. Um. Yeah, it's just, I mean, there was a lot of talent out there, and you you got guys constantly traveling back and forth to to uh, Japan that stopped and did uh, shows there. You know, you had Hawaii, mm-hmm. you know, guys that were back and forth going to, to Hawaii for Ed Francis. And uh, it's just, there was... Blessing was the top draw there. Who was? Pretty Blessing. Yeah. Blassie was, and he he had Don Carson out there for a while. Maybe that's what killed it, to have Don Carson. Out there. <laughs> <laughs> what Carson uh, or Brady? N- neither one, because both of them were very talented guys. Now, what 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 killed it was, you know, the bionic wrestler. They may have, may have had an invisible wrestler out there too. I wonder when they were kicking things around, if they were just totally out of ideas, or somebody said this is going to be the greatest thing we've ever put put in the ring is this bionic wrestler. Uh, well, yeah, you know, the six million dollar man was was uh, a big you know thing. It's it's like you know trying to be you know create a, a wrestling gimmick out of out of uh, something that pop culture has never worked. I mean, that's how we're Vince McMahon in the in you know his expansion years when it became so cartoonish because every time you know something became a pop culture thing, he'd create a wrestler out of it. Like you know, mm-hmm. who can who can forget Outback Jack because of Crocodile Dundee <laughs> being so popular? You know, you know, Dances with Wolves got you know. And won the Oscar, and next thing you know, he's got a uh, takes a guy named Chris Chavez and turns him into Tatanka with a red mohawk. So you know, it just it just never never was 
you know, to me. And I guess that's what their idea was. Now, when I, now who came up with the monster idea? I have no idea, because that that wasn't pop culture then. They were going back to the 30s and picking up Frankenstein's monster and doing uh, that gimmick. Speak, speaking of who monsters, the monster, I know the Mike. What's that? Who was the monster? Jesse Hernandez. Oh yeah. Uh, they did a mummy in uh, in Memphis, did they not? But there was uh, wasn't the original mummy uh, a Mexican wrestler? Yeah, Benji, Benjamin Ramirez. Yeah, he was big in Texas. Yeah, Memphis did all kind. Of, they had they had Doctor Frankenstein, and they had uh, Freddy Krueger, and they had uh, the mummy, and you know. You know, Ernesto was the mummy in Nashville. No, I didn't know he did it in Nashville. I thought. Yep. Uh, uh, I know they used Count uh, Bulldog Drummer one time, and then uh, Dr. Frank was Tommy Gilbert. And uh, Bill, Bowman, was, was Bill Bowman was a mummy in Mobile. The reason I knew it, I was in Chattanooga. They'd have the uh, Avalanche come in, drive up to the ring, pull the casket out. The mummy would get out of the casket, go in and wrestle, and get his victory, get back in the casket, get back in the ambulance, and leave. Gee. Yeah, that's uh, professional professional wrestling right there, ladies. It's You know, it's like, Bobby, you were saying, if, the, if they thought they could make a dollar off of doing it, they would do it, right? Sure. You know, you're talking about, you're talking about a guy thinking, well, this has got to be the greatest thing that's ever been done. You think about all the crap that's been done over the years, just with the with the gimmicks that have been used. Batman, uh, yeah. uh, the Mummy, uh, the Monster. I mean, just you know. I mean, the it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> you know. I, I mean, it's just yeah. But uh, hey, at least at least uh, Frazier was living up to his to his. You know, he really was a convict. So yeah. yeah. You know when you when you know Bobby and and you and Charlie and uh, made your living for many 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 years in professional yeah. wrestling and, and you considered it your yeah. business and and you were proud of it, but when you would talk to people on the street that 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 didn't have that love, and there would be something that would come up come up that was just you know totally embarrassing, did did it did it bother you or did you just roll with the punches? It bothered me. It bothered me. I mean, you know, you got to remember. Now, I came along right at the end. <laughs> you know, I was maybe one of the last two or three generations of of kayfabe. You know, uh, you didn't let people smart off about your business. I mean, you challenged them. Yep. You know, I mean, you did. You did. You did not. Uh, you know, you didn't back down from them. You didn't let them talk about your business that way. I mean, there was always people that didn't believe, and there was people that didn't like wrestling. That's fine, you know. You don't have to like wrestling, but right. you know, I mean, I, well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'll tell you how bad I was. You know, uh, I, this has probably been seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. I had a lady at work knocking the Atlanta Falcons one morning, and she was doing it to me, and she was trying to get a rise out of me, and and she did not stir me up. She made me mad, and I remember flying off the handle at her. And I asked her, I said, how much money have you spent on tickets? 
And she said, I wouldn't buy a ticket. I said, then you ain't got a right to say nothing. You don't have nothing invested, so you, you don't need to be saying anything about what goes on. And, you know, but the wrestling thing, you know, everybody, you, you always had people didn't believe, and sometimes you let it roll off your back, and sometimes they'd get your shackles up a little bit, and you'll, you'll, you'd, you know, you'd go after them. But, uh, right. you, just, you, just, you know, yeah, there was time. The only time... Uh, honest to goodness, the only time I've ever been embarrassed in my life was the night I was with Charlie at that show where they were doing, where the referee came out to music wearing a mask. <laughs> I prayed nobody recognized me that night. I'm glad you mentioned that. That was another L.A. gimmick. They had a mask referee. Yeah. You know who it was, hey. don't you? No, who? Ripper Collins. Okay. Oh. You know, my philosophy in talking to people was uh, you either believe or you don't, and there's no point in trying to con- convince somebody who doesn't. You can't convince somebody who doesn't, and you can't make somebody who does believe it's real not think it's real. Yeah. So just just let them think what they want to think, you know, and, and, and you know, pay your money or whatever. But it's, uh, you know, I, that, as far I as know I've told this story, but here's a great example of that, Jay. I was sitting in the ticket office one Monday morning. And we had a guy that was a regular ticket holder, came every week. His name was Jimmy Carter. He was a black fella. He was probably in his 60s. And uh, he reminded me of my dad because he wore them old dark rim glasses and he, and he combed his hair straight back, looked like he had that Vaseline oil on it like my daddy did. And he and he come to the office. And we had done something on Friday night. It had been kind of hot, whatever it was. I'd refereed the main event. And I was sitting in the office. And he'd come up, and he got up on his tiptoes, and he put his nose and his lips in that little round ring that was for the, you know, the speak through the ticket window. And he proceeded to cuss me out. Buddy, he was letting me have it. And I stood there, I sat in the chair, and I just looked at him. And finally, when I had heard enough, I jumped out of my chair and lunged toward the window. And he, like a cat, went back about six feet, just one little back jump. And I put my nose up to that window, and I said, "Jimmy, it's a work." And I sat back, and I sat down. And he came back up to that window, and he put his nose back up in there, and his words were, "You damn right, it's not going to work." And here's why. <laughs> he proceeded to tell me again. So you know, yeah, you're right. You can't you can't convince people. You know, it is what it is. Hmm. Mm. But Renesto can make you convince you, can he? Well, he can convince you. He can convince you. He can kill you in an interview. Yeah. Wish you were dead. Well, I'm afraid those days are gone, my friend. Everybody knows now they're smarter than we are. Well, they're running all these little independent shows. They have to be smarter than we are, Bobby. Yeah, I guess so. Bobby, tell them what's going to happen in Columbus, Georgia, October the 1st. Charlie tells me that a couple of promoters are getting together to rent that big, huge civic center in Columbus to put a wrestling show in there. You're kidding. Well, that's kind of what my philosophy was. Uh, My thoughts on it, I told Smitty, I said... You know who are they going to to bring that are going to that would convince people to buy tickets? 
I said, number one, they got no TV. I said, I'm not sure they can buy enough radio to do any good. They don't know if they can poster it or, you know. And I said, who are they going to put on the card that people would want right. to spend money to come see? And then Charlie told me yesterday he heard that they were going to have the Steiner brothers there. Oh, yeah, well, Lord. okay. But they ain't going to draw 15 cents. No. So, I don't know. I think it's a case of people having, you know, I, I think these people want to see these great, huge crowds at these wrestling matches. They want to. They want to be so they can say, "Look what I did! I drew the, you know, put this show together." Uh, man, these people are just throwing money away. Is what they're doing. As Jerry O well, says, "It's over." People need to realize that. <laughs> it's over. It's over. Yes, where it's not 1970 anymore. <laughs> no, it's not even. It's not even 1980 anymore, Bob. No, no. (laughs) Oh, me. If you talk to her, maybe you've got a crowd. Hmm. Well. When's that thing in Blakely? August 6th. Okay. August the 13th, they got a big match in Dublin. They got Ole, Horn. Uh, I don't know who all they got done. I don't know where this guy is. They, they got a building in 500 seats. Well, gonna, and neither one of them are going to work, I hope. I mean, I guess they're going to show up and sign autographs or whatever, or sell autographs. Yep, but, yep sell pictures. It's just high for what all they can sell. What are you going down there to sell? Gibbets. Masks yeah. and pictures. Pictures of what, you? Yeah. <laughs> we had some referees in Georgia that should have been made to wear a mask. Uh, I won't call them names, but, you know. Well, I, I, like I say, these, these guys put these shows on, and I, you know, the Blakely show is is Dennis Gale's show. Dennis does a heck of a job when he promotes shows. He does a uh, everything's everything's first class. His ring's good. His his facility's good. He, you know, he's he has uh, he brings talent in from from uh, the southeastern area, which is what the people knew down there. Uh, but there again, you know. He he only runs it once a year, once or twice a year. So, you know, if you're doing that and you make a few dollars, then that's a good thing. Some of these guys trying to run every week. Mm. I got a call out of the blue. What day was it? Tuesday, I got a call out of the blue from the manager of the Houston County Farm Center in Dothan. And uh, why in the world did he do to call me? He called me to see if the circus was still in business. And I said, well, I haven't been with them in almost three years now, and as far as I know, they are padlocked. And he said, well, I was just wanting to know, because I've got other, some other circuses and that want to come into 
you know, come in here the time that you guys normally do. I said, well, all I can tell you to do is book them. So I was asking about the Farm Center because I know they've been running some some reunion shows down there. And somebody kept arguing with me saying that they were actually doing it in the Farm Center. And I knew better than that because that Farm no, Center belongs to the... Door. Yeah, I was going to say it's next door because the, the the Farm Center itself belongs to Homeland Security. And they won't even let you look in because the, they wouldn't let me go in there and look because I want to go in there and take pictures. You know, because when, when I was down there with the circus... But uh, the guy that's a, the, that runs the place said, nope, they won't let anybody in there. But I don't remember the, uh, I don't think when we used to work in that building, that, that the building that they run in now that's next door, I don't know that it was there then. I didn't know. It was never when I was there. When I refereed down there. Just a big farm center. It was always there. Yep. Do you remember anything next door by me? No, I don't remember anything. Yeah. Of course, I wasn't looking either. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're right. Hmm, we have to ask Greg Brown next time we, we talk to him because he would remember since he was there every Friday night. But right on the corner of that parking lot is where the uh, the health department is. I guess that was convenient to the boys to go get all of their penicillin shots. There you, right, not, not for the matches either. <laughs> it's still there because I had to go uh, get our uh, our permits and everything, our health permits. So they made it convenient for me. All I had to do was walk up to the corner up there in the corner of the parking lot and get them. Of course, I had to give away tickets and everything to, to the circus to make sure that everything got processed properly. We're down to two and a half minutes. If anybody's got anything they really need to tell anybody else about right now, gentlemen. Uh, I don't know anything else other than uh, I've enjoyed tonight. It's been good. Yes, sir. Yeah, I enjoyed Chuck tonight. Got to have him yeah. back again. Yeah, it's just hard to, to pin Chuck down. He stays so busy. A lot of folks yeah. dying to get in that business he's in. <laughs> I asked him the other day, he said, about five, how many funeral directors do they have? How long do they have in Atlanta now? I think he's going to be 38. Hmm. Well, nearly all the funeral homes are owned by conglomerates now. You know, there's very few uh, Very few independents. You got that right. Very few. Yep. Uh, and a lot of the a lot of the funeral homes that the conglomerates own, they're shutting them down. Yep. <clears throat> Carmichael in East Point, which had been there for decades, run by the Carmichael family, was bought by a corporation. They shut it down. Oh, it's it's uh, gone now. Yeah, Parkway, which was there in Forest Park, uh, was there for for a number of years. It's gone, uh, shut down. The one down in Jonesboro, Pope Dixon, it's uh, it's no longer in business. Uh, so you know the, the the they buy up these funeral homes and shut them down to do away with the competition. 
wow. you know, but you still got you still got several in Atlanta that are independently or owned by families or individuals, but not nearly as many as they used to be. They used to be family run businesses. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, Mike has uh, thirty seconds. Down on that. 81 down uh, Logan, outside of Loganville, and then never did open. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, we'll uh, we'll all get together next week, and we'll uh, see what kind of trouble we can get in then. Appreciate yeah, it, everybody. Good. good night, guys. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.